Church, would you bow with me and let's pray together once again. Father, as we come to this portion of our worship service, Spirit, we ask that you would be just as present as in the singing and in the giving. Lord, that in spite of a foolish and frail and insufficient servant, that you might speak your gospel to us. That you might teach us from your word. That you might convict us where we need convicting. Lord, that you would comfort those of us who are hurting. That you would encourage those of us who are downtrodden. Lord, that you would challenge us and motivate us to live for you. To live on mission for you. Father, all of this is possible through your spirit moving through the reading, the teaching, and the proclamation of your holy word. Would you speak to us now, Father, as we humbly sit before you, seeking to hear your words. We ask all this in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to take it and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. If you don't happen to have your Bible with you, feel free to take one from the back of the pew that's there in front of you and borrow that one. If you don't own your own copy of Scripture, please feel free to take that copy with you as a gift from us to you. We will replenish it and we will be happy to do so. Whether you're accessing through a a bound book or through your phone or tablet or if you're just following along on the screens, however you may be accessing the Word of the Lord, if you're physically able, would you please stand out of reverence for the public reading of God's Word? I will read for us Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 5 through verse 33. When I have completed, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you are grateful for it, I encourage you to respond with a hearty thanks be to God. Let's look together now, beginning in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 10. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it. And stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if the house is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. 
When they deliver you over, don't be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be giving, given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So, have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men... I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Last week we spent a very brief amount of time in Matthew chapter 5 looking at the Sermon on the Mount, one specific passage within the Sermon on the Mount. And I just want to remind you of some things that we talked about, about the structure of the book of Matthew. So let me remind us all of our chart that we had last week. If uh, Chris, you'll put it on the screen there for me. We have five large times of teaching, five large discourses that Jesus gives in the gospel of Matthew. Matthew has arranged it in this way on purpose so that we see Jesus as the better, the greater, the perfect Moses. The one that Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 18 would come after him. This is the prophet in line with Moses, but greater than Moses. Moses is the one who compiles and authors the first five books of the Old Testament. And so we have five powerful times of teaching from Jesus. And so he starts off with the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. Takes about 15 minutes to read from start to finish. Then we move to chapter 10. If you have a Bible with red letters in it, you'll notice that almost every letter in chapter 10 is probably read. The same thing is true in chapter 13, and then again in chapters 18 through 20, and then again in chapters 24 through 25. Jesus gives these large discourses, and each one has its own thematic meaning. This is not something that is crazy that I have cooked up on my own. You can find this in most any study Bible. He starts off giving the authoritative message of the Messiah. He is the Messiah. This is what the new kingdom will look like. Then he gives the mission of the Messiah's messengers. And so this morning, what we're going to look at is the mission that he gives to his disciples. The first part of chapter 10, they list off all 12 of 
the disciples. And so we get an idea of who Jesus is talking to when it refers to the twelve. And so it picks up there in verse 5. And he starts giving them a mission. This correlates with Mark chapter 6, where the disciples are sent out two by two. And they're given a very special and very specific mission. And if you're like me, you read something like that and you go, okay, well, that's great. But that means that all these instructions are just for the twelve, right? I mean, this is not something that would apply across thousands of years to you and I. But that's what's amazing about Scripture. Scripture has a way of providing teaching, instruction, and prophecy that, as John MacArthur describes it, is telescopic. It's here and now, but it's also looking through a telescope far off into the future, even to us today. So an example of this would be in the Old Testament. In Micah chapter 5, we see in verses 2 through 4 a prediction that the Messiah, the Anointed One, Jesus, would come into the world and be born in the town of Bethlehem. But then almost immediately, in the same breath, it begins talking about the things that Jesus will do, not in his first coming, when he shows up as a baby, when he's helpless and laid in a manger, but they begin talking about how Jesus will come again. But if you're reading Micah chapter 5, it flows together seamlessly. It's blended as though it's talking about one event But we know now, with the benefit of history, that it's talking very clearly about future events and the here and now. And so what we find in Matthew chapter 10 is that Jesus is giving some instruction that is very specific to the twelve, but he's also giving instruction that applies across all generations to all those who would be followers of him. And so let's look back through what we're told in chapter 10. Verse 5, he sends them out. He says, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. Isn't that a funny instruction? As much as Jews hated Samaritans and Gentiles, this is not an encouragement that Jesus would have to give very forcefully. I could imagine the 12 being like, duh, we're not going there. It's almost like if you tell your kids not to go to the really, really dangerous parts of a city and they go, well, duh, I mean, I know there's crime there. I'm not, I'm not going to go where it's immediately putting me in danger. The 12 probably were like, yes, right on. We don't have to deal with any ugly, unclean Gentiles, or we don't have to deal with any Samaritans. This is going to be a great mission. So if, if they were already so eager not to go to Gentiles and not to go to Samaritans, why would Jesus say that? Does that mean that the gospel, the good news, that there is salvation in Christ and in Christ alone is only for Israelites? No. No, consistently in Scripture, we're given this methodology. Even in Paul's missionary journeys, remember, he goes to the synagogue first and begins to preach to the Jew and tell them that Jesus is the Messiah, that there's only one way to be with the Father, to be in paradise when we die, and that is through Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah who died in our place. That is the message of the gospel that is available to everyone, to whosoever will, to anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. But the mission begins with the Israelites. And that's why some of the instruction later is so severe, because they should know better. They should be looking for the Messiah, and they have the scriptures that the Gentiles don't have. 
They have the instruction that the Samaritans have sort of a perverted version of. So the Israelites should be, ought to be the ones who respond most fervently. They should be the ones who are the most excited that the Messiah is here. And yet Jesus says, if they don't hear you, if they don't listen to you, shake the dust off your shoes and move on. Treat them as anathema. Say, oh, well, gave it my best shot. I am moving on. That's the same thing that we saw in Paul. He would tell the people in the synagogue, fine, if you don't want to hear the gospel, if you don't want this good news, if you don't want this message of hope, then I'll just move on and go to the Gentiles, those who will hear it, those who will accept it. And I've got to be honest with you guys, that scares me to death. Because the people that you and I look most like are not necessarily the Samaritans, not necessarily the Gentiles. The the people that you and I relate with, those of us who are here most Sunday mornings, those of us who are very committed to the church, we look like the Israelites. Now, given we are Gentiles, okay, we're not, most of us, I don't think there's any Jews in the congregation, maybe somebody tuning in online, but our ethnicity, our, our nationality, we're not Jewish. We're probably part of that huge group of everybody else known as the Gentiles. But who we resemble now today in the Bible Belt, in the buckle of the Bible Belt, way down in South Alabama, we probably look a lot more like the people that the Twelve were sent to and a lot less like the tax collectors and the so-called sinners and the Gentiles and the Samaritans. So, so why does that make it scary? Well, it makes it scary because of what Jesus says regarding, regarding Sodom and Gomorrah. Did you notice after they dust the feet off the, the, after they knock the dust off of their feet and they leave, Jesus says this really intense statement. It will be worse for them than Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment. Man, that, that's really strong words. Like you, you remember Sodom and Gomorrah, right? A pillar of fire came down from heaven and engulfed the whole city. Nobody was left. And it was so intense that anybody that turned and looked back turned into a pile of salt. This is extreme, immediate punishment. A huge pillar of fire consumes these entire cities. And then anyone who disobeys and turns to look turns to salt. And yet it will be worse than that for those who reject the message from the disciples, who reject the message from John the Baptist. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see why it's scary? Because that's you and me. We've got the scriptures. Not only do we have the scriptures, we've got multiple translations of the scriptures. We like to argue with one another about our various translations of the scriptures and which one is real and which one is fake and which one has liberal influence and which one's conservative and which one's true and which one's false and which one uses the right manuscripts and comes from the right descended of texts. We like to argue over this. We have so many copies of it. We should know the message. We should live the message, right? The Israelites had the scrolls. They had the scriptures. They had the Sanhedrin. They had the Pharisees. They had the Sadducees. They had teachers of the law. They had people who had every word of scripture memorized and could quote it, cataloged in their brain. You could say Micah 5 and they could go, boom, Micah 5, bam, here it is. And yet they missed Jesus 
when he was there. He sends the twelve through the lost tribes of Israel, to those who were lost in the midst of Israel. And folks, you and I resemble that quite a bit, especially where we live, especially where we are. And so what I want us to look at this morning is just that message of hope, that we don't miss what should be so plain and right in front of our faces You and I know the gospel so well, most often we can repeat it just like that. We can fire back at somebody, yeah, 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 you got to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect life, that he died our death, and that he was raised from the dead. you got to believe that. And that's that's the gospel. That's the good news. And, And we know it up here, and we can recite the answers really well, but has it really penetrated into our hearts so that we live it out? That's why we looked at Matthew chapter 5 last week. Because the gospel is the transformational truth that Jesus is God's Son. That Jesus lived a perfect life, died our death, and was raised and sits at the right hand of the Father. And that there is only one way to the Father, and that's through Him. That's the good news of the gospel. But that good news should change the way we behave. I'm not saying that a change in behavior is required for salvation, but it should change how we act. We should look different than the world. And that's where we fall into verse 16. Verse 16 is one of those that telescopes out to us. Verse 16 is not just to the twelve. It is to you and I today. Jesus is saying to them and thousands of years later to us and everybody in between and everybody who will come after that for those who are truly his followers, he is sending us out as sheep in the midst of wolves. We are being sent into this world as sheep in the midst of wolves. Folks, have you ever heard a sermon, listened to a podcast, heard a a lecture, read a book, read a blog that talks about the ferocity of sheep? Anybody? Anybody read that? The mighty talons of the sheep. The sharp teeth of the sheep that will devour one man whole. Anybody? Have you read that book? I haven't found it yet. Nope. None of y'all found it yet either. Yeah, that's that's because everything we ever read about sheep is that they're stupid, is that they're dumb, is that they grow their wool out until they can't move, so they got to have somebody shear all their wool. They have absolutely no self-defense, and their only hope is to border up together and bind all up in one big group or run away. And they're really not good at the running away stuff either. And then when they group all up, all the wolves are like, thank you guys so much. This is saving us so much exercise. Now you're all in one group and we'll just eat you all in one big swoop. Sheep are not a defensive animal. They need a shepherd. They need someone to guard them. Jesus will say elsewhere in the New Testament that We have to beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. Paul will recite this same refrain, that in the church we are sheep if we are his followers, and we have to beware of wolves penetrating into the flock in sheep's clothing. But this is completely diametrically opposed to that instruction. Verse 16, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Sheep don't have sharp teeth to defend themselves. They don't have claws 
They don't act like wolves. You see, we're sent out amongst the wolves and we have the defense of the good shepherd, but we are not supposed to defend ourselves the same way that the wolves defend themselves. But folks, I think along the way we've missed that. The last half of this verse is something that I quote all the time. Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. This is how we live as sheep among the wolves with the wisdom, the cunning of a snake, a serpent. But the innocence and the purity of the dove. And sometimes, instead of living as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves, we live as wolves among the wolves. And we're more prone to devour one another and devour the other wolves out there in the world than we are to be wise and innocent. And look, there's examples all through the text of people living out wise and innocent lives. Look at Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus in Matthew chapter 22 has the perfect opportunity to respond and get super political, right? Jesus has the perfect opportunity in Matthew chapter 22 to be a wolf among the wolves. They say, hey, Jesus, what should we do about paying taxes to Caesar? This is his opportunity. The Roman government is the most deplorable government against Christians that has ever been. They are awful, okay? That's a bit of exaggeration. There's been a lot of bad governments. I don't know if the Romans have been the worst, but they were awful. This is their chance. They've oppressed the Israelites. This is Jesus' chance to denounce Caesar, to denounce Rome, to talk about all the horrible things that they're doing and how we should keep our money from Rome and rise up and revolt against them. What does Jesus say in in Matthew chapter 22, verse 21? It's, It's something we quote all the time, right, if we've grown up in the church. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Render unto God what is God's. Do you see the wisdom and the cunning and the cautious nature of our Savior? They never could trap Him in His words. They always wanted Him to insert Himself into situations that Jesus did not intend to comment on. And folks, I'm sure that that was as infuriating to them as it is to us now. How many times have you ever really wanted to know a certain answer? And you go to the Bible hoping you find that answer, but God never promises that the Bible is going to give us every answer that we want. He promises that Scripture is sufficient and will give us every answer that we need. And boy, there have been a lot of answers I have wanted. There have been a lot of situations that I have wanted to jump into and say, please, I want the direct answer. Give me the ABC. Give me two plus two is four. And that is what I will do. And for whatever reason, God in his omniscience, in his perfect wisdom, because his ways are higher than our ways, he deems that I don't need that answer. That's just an answer that I want. The same thing is true when Jesus is walking around on earth. They want certain answers, certain responses from him, but they can never trap him in his words because he's as wise and as cunning as a serpent while remaining innocent and as pure as a dove. We also see a great example in Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Wisdom and innocence, cunning and gentleness. 
It's all handmaids of discretion, as John MacArthur would say. We can all agree that Paul was one of the most uncompromising people in Scripture, right? Paul was the guy that would give it to you blunt, right? Paul's the guy that's going to step in where you think maybe he ought not to step in. He's going to speak where maybe he ought not to speak, right? Paul would say, hey, I I hope that when these people who are insisting you circumcise yourself, when they're trying to circumcise themselves, I hope that they slip the knife and emasculate themselves completely. Yeah, that's Paul. Uncompromising, blunt, straightforward, right? But in 1 Corinthians, the wisdom of a serpent, the innocence of a dove that Paul illustrates, chapter 9, verses 19 through 20, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verses 19 through 20, Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Wise as a serpent, innocent and pure as a dove. Knowing when to insert ourselves in situations and when not to. Knowing when that friend comes to you, there's a hard truth that you could tell them, but knowing when to say it and how to say it. Knowing how to say, how to speak the truth in love. How to continue to be a sheep in the midst of wolves and trust that the good shepherd has us in his hands. Not bearing sharp teeth and claws and fangs, but trusting and living wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove. Innocence involves a lot more than just avoiding negative attitudes, right? It's a lot more than just avoiding negative approaches. Innocence involves purity. Folks, integrity and honesty are practical manifestations of truthfulness. There is nothing unethical There is nothing that seems deceitful. There is nothing that is truly deceitful that will help us advance the cause of the gospel. If you cheat to win, you've lost already. We have to be pure and innocent. Paul gives another great example of this when he's in Acts chapter 23. And he's being tried by the Sanhedrin, and he doesn't realize that the high priest is there. And the high priest orders that somebody strike him across the mouth. Now, y'all, I just love that in that moment, Paul is human. Because I am human. He gets struck across the mouth. And he goes, how dare you strike me across the mouth or order that I be struck across the mouth. The Lord is going to judge you, you whitewashed wall, you whitewashed tomb. And then they go, how? Dare you speak that way to the Lord's anointed, to the high priest over Israel? And Paul doesn't double down. He responded in anger. He responded incorrectly. He insulted someone, and nothing of what he said was going to help advance the gospel. 
So he humbled himself. He repented. He apologized. He said, God, I'm sorry. I did not realize that that was the high priest. And then he quotes scripture and says, for the Lord says that you shall not speak against his anointed. Immediately he backs up because innocence is important in how we represent the gospel. I say all this because here's something I've noticed in our church, in the Southern Baptist denomination, in other denominations. I've noticed that we've begun to lose the ability to interact with one another as sheep. I've lost the ability to speak with nuance as a wise serpent and an innocent dove. We've come to a place where we speak in extremes and in extremes only. And, and you know, I, I feel like there's a connection. This is, this is just me speaking, okay? You, you can take this or leave it. But I feel like for decades we have had shock jocks. Y- y'all familiar with what I mean when I say a shock jock like a Howard Stern, a Opie and Anthony? Uh, honestly, even when Rush Limbaugh started, he was a form of shock jock, saying the most extreme conservative views and opinions so that he could get more ratings. Shock jocks were people who would speak in exaggerations, speak in extremes, always push the limit, always push as far as they could go, and people loved it. People loved to hate Howard Stern, right? They would listen in to his program just to see what vile and vulgar vulgar and repulsive thing he would say next. And so as more people listened in, the problem wasn't necessarily the shock jocks as much as it was us as a people, as a society, giving them the views and the ratings that they wanted. And so they pushed the envelope a little farther and pushed the envelope a little bit farther. And then as the rest of society began to notice that that got a lot of views, that that got a lot of ratings, they began to mimic that. So now, today, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a commentator on CNN, on Fox News, on MSNBC, or any other mainstream broadcast channel that speaks in nuance that speaks as wisely as a serpent and as innocently as a dove. They all speak in extremes because they're all pushing for and fighting for that one soundbite that they can use to go viral. Then they get all the views that they need, they get all the ratings that they need, and they can have their job for another day. This is true with all the people writing blog posts. And I know, I'm I'm speaking in extremes. This is something I struggle with. There are good blogs out there. There are good podcasts out there. But by and large, what we see in the majority is a shock jock nation. Everything we tune into, it's only the extremes. And we've begun to devour one another within the church putting labels on each other. Oh, well, you're a liberal. Oh, well, you're an ultra-conservative. You're a fundamentalist. You're a Calvinist. You're an Arminian. We've gotten to this place where there is no more innocence like doves. There is no more purity. There is no more benefit of the doubt. There is no more truth and caution and cunning like serpents. We write people off at the drop of a hat. We throw a label on them and put them on one extreme of one side and then drop them like a bad habit. And then anybody that brings them up, well, you you know, you know what they believe, don't you? It, It might not be what they believe, 
But that's how we speak of them. Jesus had every opportunity to speak of people that way, and he never did. Jesus had every opportunity to speak of the Roman government that way, and he never did. And when Paul mistakenly spoke in anger and reviled the high priest, he immediately apologized to maintain the innocence of a dove. Folks, we're not talking about a salvation issue here, okay? But we are living in a world where we put labels and talk in extremes. That person is an adulterer, and that's just who they are, and that's who they'll always be. And from now on, we look at them, and that's who we see them as. Oh, they've been divorced. Well, you know, obviously, if they were divorced, then that means that they're terrible. Folks, there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot that happens when people separate. God says he hates divorce, and he hates it because of all the trauma that it causes But people who get divorced, God still loves them passionately. There is a way to love and minister to people who have committed sins. There's a way to love and and minister to people who've been divorced. There's a way to love and minister to people who may have vastly differing opinions than you or I. And it's by living out the wisdom and cunning of a serpent and the innocence of a dove. Jesus says that's going to be absolutely essential from now in this short-term mission until I return again, until the Son of Man comes again. It's going to be essential because there is an enemy, and the enemy is out there seeking to devour us, roaming like a lion, seeking whom he might devour. There are wolves all around us. And Jesus is sending us out as sheep in the midst of the wolves. And a lot of us aren't even going out into the wolves because we're too busy bickering in the flock. We're too busy fighting with the other sheeps, biting each other with our dull teeth, headbutting each other because we got nothing else we can do, splitting churches every which way. Folks, we are to live lives as sheep among wolves. And our adversary wants us to think that we have to be the wolves. But when we lose the innocence and purity, we've lost. When we're not wise and cunning like serpents, we've lost. When we're not able to speak with a nuance, with an understanding that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that somebody else's sins might be different than mine, their viewpoint might be different than mine, but we can find common ground to work forward for the gospel. We're losing that sensibility because the wolves around us are intent on devouring one another. And we're trying to help them devour us as well. So what do we do? How do we fix it? What's the answer, right? I think the answer is found in John 10. Sheep can't fix it themselves. We're stupid. We're dull. We're sheep. The answer is found not in digging down deep and fixing it myself. I'm going to work real hard. I'm going to do real good. The answer is to stop trying to defend ourselves, but to look to the Good Shepherd. 
Jesus says, don't even worry about what you're going to say when they capture you. The Spirit's going to give you what you need to say. The Spirit's going to speak for you. Folks, if we want to live with the wisdom and cunning of a serpent and the innocence of a dove so that the gospel might go forward, it's our job to look to the good shepherd, to look to Christ, to remind ourselves of the gospel and to walk in the gospel daily. We're not going to be perfect, but I'm telling you, if we look to the shepherd, he can put us back together as a flock in more ways than one. And so I wonder, all week long, the Lord's convicted me about the way I speak, the things that I write, how I speak in extremes. Am I speaking as a wise, cunning serpent and an innocent dove? Or am I doing whatever it takes, by any means necessary, to get what I want? And I I just wonder, if you think of yourself, even in this last week, how do we measure up to Matthew chapter 10, verse 16? Are we living as sheep sent out among wolves? Are we living as wise as serpents and as innocently as doves? If we're not, let me encourage us all this morning to direct our hearts, our very souls, to the Good Shepherd who can set the sheep aright again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are so very patient with ignorant loud and obnoxious sheep like me. Lord, I I just want to pray and ask that you would help us in our weakness with one another, with the world that's watching, to be wise and innocent, to be cunning and pure, to live as sent missionaries wherever we are. Jesus was not just sending out the twelve, Lord. When He spoke, when You spoke, Lord, You were sending us out in and amongst the wolves. Help us to remember we're just sheep. Lord, help me, help us not to act like the wolves. To be patient. To be loving. To be joyful. To be peaceful be kind, to be good, to be gentle, to be self-controlled. These are the things that make us look like you. Would you watch over us? Would you change our hearts? We ask all this in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.